Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis, and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. With Halloween just around the corner, we're talking about cemeteries today. I'm joined by author Greg Melville, who is the author of a new book called Over My Dead Body, Unearthing the Hidden History of America's Cemeteries. Greg has toured the United States, visiting notable historic cemeteries from Burial Hill in Plymouth, Massachusetts, to Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia, and Boot Hill in Tombstone, Arizona. Greg's historical research covers the early colonists, slavery, war, religion, nature, celebrity, and architecture, as we learn about the stories behind these cemeteries. Welcome, Greg. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you uh, so much for sharing the book with me. I really enjoyed it. Um, so first of all, uh, one thing I noted as I was reading the book and you were noting your um, how you interacted with your family and explained your strange urge to visit all of these cemeteries. Would you say that you're obsessed with cemeteries? It sounds like you've been talking to my wife and kids. They, they, obsessed is a word perhaps they would use. I, I would like to think of it as more of a healthy relationship with cemeteries. I think that we get along really well, uh, and I, we like to spend a lot of time together. Uh, but obs- maybe not obsessed, but but a, but a healthy fascination with, I, I guess, is how I might refer to it. A healthy, strong interest. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Take that for so, what you will. Indeed, indeed. Uh, so with Halloween just days away, uh, can we both agree here that cemeteries are not spooky places? Yes, to a degree. So during the daylight hours, absolutely. Uh, as the sun is setting in certain places, like you, you mentioned, Burial Hill in Plymouth, Massachusetts, where the it's kind of a little forbidding and the wind might be blowing and some of the gravestones are very kind of gothic. I have to admit, perhaps there is that element to it. But in general, absolutely. These are places of beauty and art and architecture and nature, and they really are alive in so many different respects. And stories and full of stories, yeah. which is kind of where your, your book comes from, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, did How many of them did you actually visit uh, at dusk or at darkness? Any of them at all? <laughs> Just a burial hill. That's what came to mind uh, the one time that I, I, I do mention it in the book. But then also, um, but I've been there in the daylight as well. Uh, and that's generally uh, how I visit cemeteries for the most part is during the very safe daylight hours uh, when cemeteries are open and uh, where people are milling about and they are alive with activity. Okay, so let's perhaps start with Burial Hill. So that's a cemetery dating back from the early colonists that came uh, to the United States, correct? Yes, yes. And uh, it was basically, as all cemeteries are, of necessity, uh, but in their case, the, the pilgrims who came over to uh, to Plymouth, they at first were – the burials were very hasty and unmarked because they it was more just 
it would have taken more energy, which they didn't have at that time as they were just trying to survive, to have an elaborate uh, burial ground. So that kind of arose later on. I mean, really, it was a kind of a, a desperate struggle for survival for those early colonists, really. So they yeah. would have actually been or were handling a, a, a large number of bodies because of the high death toll. Right. And what's actually fascinating, too, is that those early colonists, the, before they, they arrived in late fall, and uh, at first they, they landed at Cape Cod, uh, just across Cape Cod Bay from Plymouth. And when they landed, they were looking for treasure, and then also they were looking for food. And they came upon some graves of indigenous people, and they dug them up, not knowing what was under the fresh earth, and found stores of grain and corn. And the corn that they ended up grave robbing from several graves ended up being what sustained them through that first winter. Uh, this act of desecration on one hand was, uh, an, was what enabled them to survive. Uh, so graves and graveyards and burial places are very much embedded in the story of those first people who came over uh, to Plymouth. Right. So I would say probably for me, the most well-known cemetery that you visited, I, th I think they're all pretty much well-known to Americans, but the one I particularly knew was um, Arlington um, in Virginia. And that's one I, ha I have visited. And I have to say that one, first of all, it's, it's vast, it's really big, but it's also like a desperately sad one because it's filled with graves of young people. Um, I, I don't know, what was your thoughts about Arlington? Very similar. Uh, for sure. And being a, a veteran myself, it uh, definitely made me turn inward and, and, and think about uh, my own experiences uh, overseas. But also, yeah, I think that the uniformity to it is really striking, how all of these graves are the same size and the same dimensions and made from white marble and how they're laid out in rows that are so uniform uh, that really uh, gives it this, on the one hand, it kind of creates this equality in death, but then it just shows you the immense measure of it that is hard to really describe until you see it. It's just such a profound experience to go to Arlington and see these resting places. And yeah, as you explain, that cemetery, when it was created, was almost a political act because the location um, was formerly the the family home of um, Robert E. Lee. And they were really sort of like making a political statement by turning it into a burial ground for um, Confederate soldiers. Is, is that the right way to think of it? Yes, absolutely. And when you think about it, uh, national cemeteries, just by their very nature, are political in a lot of respects. So in the case of Arlington National Cemetery, it was, yes, it was created on basically the land that was owned by Robert E. Lee and his wife, and they built the cemetery. The first burial plots were surrounding the house so that no matter what happened in the war, Robert E. Lee could never live in that house again. It's on a, a very advantageous vantage point over uh, across the Potomac River from Washington, D.C., so they also wanted to use it. They wanted to make sure that it couldn't be a spot that was occupied by the Confederacy later, but uh, it was an extremely political act uh, 
basically the Union thumbing its nose at the Confederacy by saying, hey, we've occupied, not only have we occupied Robert E. Lee's estate, but we're now turning it into a graveyard. So out of all of the cemeteries that you visited, which one would you say is your favorite one and why? And favorite isn't really a good word, but the most significant one to you? Well, the one that I enjoy the most is probably Hollywood Forever Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles. And it, it's amazing. You walk through the gates and it's this sun-splashed, kind of gaudy, kitschy, flashy Hollywood cemetery with gravestones that are that look like baby grand pianos or uh, other kind of interesting art and you have statues of Burt Reynolds or of Johnny Ramone and there are peacocks that are running around and yet at the same time you see joggers in there and you see people who are just sitting on park benches reading books and spending the day and this kind of combination of culture and art is really fun. Hollywood Forever sometimes has, or quite often has, outdoor movies uh, on the lawn. They have concerts that, that people go to. It's a kind of a place where people take their dates. And when I go there on a beautiful day in Southern California, I can't help but think, you know, I could just stay there forever, except not really forever, but forever. Just linger there. So... On a sort of more um, serious subject, can you explain about where you where you're writing about uh, um, cemeteries or graveyards for slaves? And I think we should probably talk about the Thomas Jefferson location um, as probably the main one there. Yeah. So from 1619 onward until emancipation uh, during the Civil War there were 6 million people who died while enslaved in what is now the United States. And almost none of those graves still exist. Uh, and, and those burial grounds, most most of them are not on the map anywhere. Only now are we starting to find some of them uh, and find ways to protect them and restore them. And really kind of symbolic of this whole phenomenon is Thomas Jefferson's plantation, Monticello in Virginia, where Thomas Jefferson built this elaborate grave to himself and chose the graveyard, you know, where his family graveyard would be and wrote his own epitaph. And he understood the symbolism of cemeteries and burial grounds and graves and that people would be seeing his burial ground for centuries to come and looking specifically at his grave, seeking it out. And he also understood the uh, importance, the symbolic importance of erasing a graveyard. For instance, the enslaved people's burial ground on his property, he kept no records of it, even though he was this meticulous record keeper who put everything down in writing. And it, it really shows the intent behind hiding literally where the bodies were buried, which is something, a phenomenon that took place throughout the United States in not just neglecting uh, these important burial grounds, but literally erasing them. 
Uh, and it, it was only until the 21st century that archaeologists were able to spot, identify, and start to restore and protect the enslaved people's burial ground on Monticello. And it's so symbolic, this kind of knowledge of what – it gets to the kind of the moral knowledge of that people had of slavery and in trying to cover up the physical evidence of it in their own legacy. And it's so striking uh, at – at uh, Thomas Jefferson's property. And you you seem to um, notice little things like the signage that, or, or the lack of signage. Yes. And you take what's, what's kind of ironic now is the, if you look at the enslaved people's burial ground at uh, Monticello, it's the only spot that you can go to when you visit Monticello, which gets hundreds of thousands of visitors a year. It's the only spot you can go without paying any money. It's a very open place where you can easily access it and and literally walk on its grounds. It's very small. But then Thomas Jefferson's family uh, burial plot on the Monticello property, which is still an active burial ground today, is one that is actually chained off and closed with gates. So when you look at it through some gates, you're actually looking through a chain and with a lock on it. And uh, it's kind of ironic that uh, just just the kind of juxtaposition of this chained in, locked, gated uh, Thomas Jefferson and then this strikingly simple but beautiful and open uh, enslaved people's uh, burial ground that they've uh, that they have unearthed and restored. Right. So. It, the like the erasure of graves is nothing new. I mean, for social reasons it happened, but also just for business reasons, I guess. Um, oh yeah. They just wanted to build on the land. It was prime land, and someone wanted to build something. Yeah, and that happens. You see that obviously. You see that it, it happens throughout Europe. It happens in the United States all the time. In San Francisco. At the turn of the 20th century, they removed or said they removed, sometimes they just built over all of the graveyards in the city and they moved all graves to Colma, California. And that even today, cemeteries in the United States are not necessarily protected in any way. Uh, they can be developed over if, if they're an old cemetery that, that no one owns or claims or uh, really builds up a, ground, uh, a groundswell of movement to protect. So – yeah, there is there one person's sacred burial ground oftentimes many many centuries later becomes another person's archaeological dig. But but there's a certain there's also a certain intent that goes behind erasing a cemetery. There are other reasons it's done. Uh there are reasons why these cemeteries were the ones that were more prone to fall to development or um be kind of taken off, removed from the maps, literally, uh, that you see generally more widespread with the historically black cemeteries in the United States or the cemeteries from other underrepresented communities. The desecration of indigenous people's graves uh, goes along the same lines as well. Right. Such as graves of Chinese immigrants or something like that. Yes, exactly. Right. Out west. Right. Um, so Thomas Jefferson's uh, historic home, Arlington, Hollywood, forever, these are all famous locations. When you stumble across a regular humble cemetery, 
do you go in are you interested in the humble ordinary ones as well that don't have celebrity um graves yes definitely there are about 144,000 burial grounds graveyards cemeteries in the united states that's about 10 times as many as there are mcdonald's and you practically see a mcdonald's on every corner and so i'm always stumbling upon new ones uh, and i love every one of these 144,000 has its own story and maybe it's not as big or as history changing as say arlington national cemetery but it's always fascinating to walk among the stories and look at the headstones and read the data if you will and try and piece together the culture art politics history health of the people who who lived and died uh, in that community and are forever memorialized or memorialized for a long time in these cemeteries. Right. So as I was reading, I was thinking that um, cemetery tourism has been alive and well for probably a couple of hundred years. And you've got a couple of examples in the book where you talk about how the people behind the cemeteries, the builders, the designers, the architects started thinking about cemeteries as a place for living people to go to hang out to relax to in to enjoy nature to see architecture or sculpture uh, or just to have it like you said at the start a peaceful bench to read a book um, could you perhaps talk about a couple of those examples sure so really that came about so uh, cemeteries were largely either came in in, in two kinds uh, in the united states up until the mid early 18, early 1800s, really. And that was cemeteries or burial grounds that were connected to houses of worship or family plots on large pieces of land. But in Europe and in the United States, in urban centers, the graveyards were filling up to the point that it became a real public health hazard. Uh, there was just not enough room in the ground to fit all of the bodies. And it was polluting wells. It was also um, creating a smell. And people were afraid by the, the, the miasma that was created that this was somehow carrying disease. So there became this movement to create cemeteries on the edge of cities or outside of cities. Another problem was, was grave robbing uh, at that time. So there was a, a cemetery that was created outside of Boston in Cambridge, Massachusetts called Mount Auburn. And it was this intentionally sculpted, standalone, beautiful cemetery that was really the first example of landscape architecture in the United States. And it was a marvel. It became the second most popular tourist attraction in the country after Niagara Falls. And so after that, uh, cemeteries that were similar, they're called it was called the rural cemetery movement or garden cemeteries popped up in different places throughout the East coast. There were ones in Philadelphia and Bangor, Maine and uh, Pittsburgh and New York city created uh, in Brooklyn, a Greenwood cemetery, which kind of outdid them all. And was just, this became almost the first public art museum and people would, because it was such a marvel, people from around the world would check out Greenwood Cemetery or Mount Auburn Cemetery. And because there were no parks at that time, there were no city parks, people would go to linger. They'd have picnics. They would spend the day just try and escape the hustle and bustle of the city. And from there, these rural cemeteries inspired urban parks like Central Park in New York. So you also uh, 
as you're going around the 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 cemeteries you talk about the famous people or infamous people or significant people that are buried in their respective cemeteries out of all the graves that you saw of famous people what surprised you i know it really sounds cliche but when i when i go i i do really think about how all things are equal in death and that we all regardless of how grand the burial place it we all go to the same place in some respects and it really does get me to think about what i do in life and what is sacred about my own life and how regardless of where i end up to focus on what i'm doing in this world and who i'm doing it for i i know that that sounds a, a bit unoriginal but i Honestly, that's I can't help but think that whenever I visit, no matter how grand or in some cases how simple uh, an important or famous person's grave is. So one example you talk about is um, Walt Disney's grave yeah. and how humble it is. Yes, exactly. And that's at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in uh, Los Angeles or just outside of, just on the edge of Los Angeles. And I also, when I go there, so at that cemetery, uh, it's made, it's basically meant to look like a country club. So none of the tombstones are standing up. They're all flat on the ground. So you, the cemetery has the just these amazing grassy expanses that are then filled with statues and artworks and beautiful chapels and things like that. And there are many there are many celebrities that are buried there that you don't even know where they are. You have to specifically get clues on your phone by someone who has hunted out a spot before. And it's really remarkable because much like we were talking about with Arlington earlier, um, there's a uniformity to it and an equality to uh, a lot of the graves uh, of celebrities who are very modestly buried uh, in these hidden spots uh, in uh, Forest Lawn. And on the other end of the scale, you also write about um, the mausoleums that you encounter, the big grand uh, buildings, I guess, that, that house people of wealth. And and you mentioned the, um, I forget his name, but the first name, but the, the gentleman who created the Woolworths empire, um, his mausoleum. Yes, F.W. Woolworth. Yes, and it's amazing. That's Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx, and it was created as kind of an answer to, to Greenwood and Brooklyn because Manhattan, most of Manhattan uh, made, or, or I guess the, the, the city government made most of Manhattan off limits to burials uh, and new cemeteries. So these new ones were created, and it really became the place of the, the burial ground for the Gilded Age. And so these uh, mausoleums, these kind of corpse cottages, have Tiffany windows made of stained glass. And the design of them was it, it's just so incredible and immaculate. And a lot of famous architects were involved in the creation of them. And it became this kind of keeping up with the, the Joneses, if you will, about people buying plots and building these very limited in size, but magnificent mausoleums. It, the layout of them, the, the grassy expanses and no fences, really 
helped inspire the layout of planned communities and suburban subdivisions in the United States. I mean, those those mausoleums mausoleums sound interesting, but like the almost the ult, ultimate vanity statement. Right, it's true. It's it's um, it's a way of of projecting your wealth and power into the future. Long, and it's kind of ironic because you go there, and most of the names are of people that you don't know. But sometimes when I go down these roads where I see these cemeteries that have massive mausoleums or really ornate ones, uh, along with enjoying the beauty of them, I think about the the poem Ozymandias where someone walks upon a statue in the desert that's falling apart and there's an inscription that basically says, you know, fear. Everyone who reads this should should fear me and my power. But yet the statue is crumbling and no one remembers exactly who this king was that the statue was of. And these these mausoleums, they they will last a long time, but they're not timeless. They can't they 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 project immortality, but they don't preserve it. Right. History moves on quite quickly. It does. Yeah. Um so right at the end of the book, you, you uh, contemplate um, where you might want to be buried or rather cremated. Um, I won't give that away, but uh, of w- where you'd like to be at the end. But with all of these visits, you must have been really considering your own mortality. Yes, it's it's kind of the, the thing that I put to the back of my mind or I try to. But at the same time, there's only so much you can do that when you're surrounded by dead people. And so, yes, I, I do think about that. And I don't think that I want to take up space. I, I don't think that in this day and age, we've we've spoken about this in this conversation about the impermanence of, of graves to some degree and, and also the just the, the matter of land use. And so I think that as of now, I, I do want to be cremated, uh, and I realize that maybe perhaps I'm avoiding a little bit or in denial a little bit, but we haven't fully discussed, my wife and I, exactly what would be done with my ashes, but we have some ideas. Right. I mean, that that problem of um, with all of the graveyards, I think you, you mentioned, about them filling up that they're literally getting to capacity and they're finding ways to either expand or do something differently. But I mean, it it seems like a problem that's only going to, well, it won't go away. Right. We only have a finite amount of space and yet we, the, the need for burial grounds will continue. And, and so of course there has to be this clash that needs to be, resolved in some way right um you write about american uh, cemeteries but i was wondering if you've considered um other cemeteries around the world i mean i'm thinking of ones back home in the uk where you've got much older graves um you know especially with churches that date back to the norman age would that be something you'd like to do to perhaps tour or write about european graves I would love to. And of course, when you think about iconic cemeteries, you think about also Père Lachaise in 
Paris, which is so amazing. But yes, I, I, I hope my research will continue. I hope it will go on, and, and perhaps there are more stories that I can tell. Indeed, indeed. All right, uh, one final question, Greg, and that is what book or books are you currently reading? Right now, the, the book that I've just picked up and is kind of on my TBR pile is a book called All the Living and the Dead by Haley Campbell. Uh, and it's kind of in keeping with, with a lot of the topics that are in my book. And she is a journalist, Haley Campbell, who uh, interviews and follows and trails and investigates people who are in the death industry. And so I, I just find it kind of as a fascinating add-on or companion to, to a lot of the research that I've done. And it's kind of opened my eyes to, to kind of the business that goes into what we see in the cemeteries. And so I'm finding that fascinating. And then I'm reading a couple of novels. I'm, I'm reading uh, Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. And that's kind of nothing, nothing new, but uh, I, I, I enjoy novels with great writing that have amazing storytelling and, and good characters. That's, All right. That's what I'm reading right now. I do have one more question because I was just thinking as you were saying what you were reading about the importance of one of the books that you mentioned in your bibliography and in earlier in, in the book, and that's um, the Jessica Mitford book, um, The American Way of Death. Is that the correct yeah. title? Yes. Yeah. So that's a really important book, like for oh, yeah. understanding the business behind uh, burials and death in the United States. Yeah, there there are very few books that you can say change the course of history in the United States, and it's not an exaggeration to say that the American way of death really was a, a, a vehicle for change because until that point, the death industry had almost gotten out of control as far as profit-making went, yet there was no regulation, there was no oversight. Uh, and as prices continued to go up, as mourning families who are so vulnerable continued to be victimized, uh, she basically unmasked the whole industry. And uh, it immediately affected great legislative change th throughout the United States and also completely changed the American perspective on how we saw the death industry. Brilliant. Okay, that's all we have time for today. Thank you to author Greg Melville for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, and good luck with the book. Uh, Greg Melville is the author of a new book called Over My Dead Body, Unearthing the Hidden History of America's Cemeteries. Uh, thanks for listening. My name is Richard Davis, and you've been listening to an Abe Books podcast, and we'll see you all again soon.